Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing shit that they know that I don't know and that you probably don't know too. My mind is going to be blown. Your mind is going to be blown. We're going to have a hell of a time together. Uh, Let's start with this fun fact. Did you know that nobody really knows what money is? Seriously, we're all carrying it in our pockets. But none of us know what the hell it actually is. We know what we can do with it, but we don't really know how to define it. I've listened to a lot of podcast episodes. I've read books. I've read articles that try to explain it. And when it comes down to it, if you corner economists, they will tell you that, well, you know, they know it has something to do with value. They know it has something to do with trust. They know that debt plays some kind of role. But none of these explanations add up to a single concrete definition that stands up to every kind of scrutiny we apply to it. That is why we have an entire field of human inquiry called economics that is basically devoted just trying to explain what the hell this shit is. What we do know for certain, though, is that money has changed a lot over time. You know, it seems pretty solid and simple to us now. Sure, at many points in history, money has come in the form of coins or precious metals, but it's also existed in the form of cattle, like actual cows, and seashells, and even strips of white deerskin leather. The money used by entire countries didn't always come from a central bank run by the government because those haven't always existed. In the 1800s, much of the paper money in America was actually issued by private banks or individual states. Even something like the gold standard, where every bill corresponds to a piece of gold sitting in a vault somewhere, well, that didn't even come along until 1816, when Britain fixed the amount of pounds in circulation to a finite amount of gold to stop inflation. And that lasted over a century, but then disappeared. We don't have the gold standard in America today. So this idea of money that we grew up with, that the state issues money that exists in the form of a piece of paper in your hand with the signature of an old guy on it to prove its authority, well, that's actually very recent. And and the future of money is quickly overtaking us. Money is about to become something else entirely. Take cryptocurrencies, for example. They act in some ways like money, in some ways not. There's a lot of complicated math involved, and no one can agree on if they're the future of money or a Ponzi scheme perpetrated on the foolish. Or look at mobile money, where in countries like China or Kenya, you've got entire economies that exist by people sending money back and forth via cell phones without the intervention of a bank or cash at all. Money right now is in a moment of transformation and transition, more than at any time in our lives. And to talk about it and tell us what the future of money holds, we have a fascinating guest on the show today. His name is Ishwar Prasad. He's an economist at Cornell, and he's the author of a book called The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. If you are interested in money, crypto, or just, I don't know, the future of life on Earth, I think you're going to love this interview. Please welcome Ishwar Prasad. Ishwar, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me a little bit about yourself before we get started. Uh, what, what do you do? What do you study? What do you teach? So I teach economics at Cornell University. I used to work for this big international financial institution called the International Monetary Fund for a long time, but I always wanted to be a professor. 
And then mm-hmm. Cornell came along, gave me this offer, so I'm now living my dream, uh, being a professor. And I largely work in uh, issues related to international finance, which means exchange rates between currencies, capital flows across countries, and issues related to monetary policy. You know, it was my dream to be a professor too, but uh, I, I, I backed off before applying to grad school. I want to be a philosophy professor. And I was like, everyone was like, yeah, maybe you should do comedy instead. That might actually be an easier uh, career path to get a job in than academia, than the liberal arts. But let's talk about, let's talk about money. You wrote a book called The Future of Money. What, it, what do you feel the future of money is? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question to start with, but let's go for it. So, you know, I've written other books in the past. Um, I had a book about the U.S. dollar, and then I had a book about the Chinese uh, currency called the renminbi. Uh, But in the last three or four years, it became apparent to me that something funky was going on in the world of money. Uh, We've all heard about Bitcoin, of course, but this notion that you might have money that was issued not by a central bank set up by government, but by some mysterious uh, computer algorithm and yeah. that people could actually use this money and value it sounded remarkable to me. Um, so I started uh, reading up on it and I realized there wasn't much to read up on. Um, <laughs> so I started uh, uh, writing about this because that's the best way to understand what is going on. And as I started writing about it, I also realized that there is much more that is connected to this. There are lots of revolutionary developments in the field of uh, finance, which go under the broad rubric of fintech or new financial technologies. You know, most of us uh, now use digital payments in some form or the other. But these could have pretty big implications for not just money, but for the world of finance, for money flowing across countries, for central banks, for investors. So what was going to be a small little book turned into um, a 500-page tome that tries to show the connections (laughs) between all of these financial technology developments and what it might mean for money, for finance, and for all of us. Wow. Okay. Well, we've talked about cryptocurrency on the show a little bit before. We did a past episode with Everest Pipkin. That was our introduction to the topic. Folks can go listen to that. Um, So first, I want to ask you about what are these other developments that you're talking about? Before we return to cryptocurrency in this conversation, what are some of the other developments that are you know happening in the world of digital currency apart from crypto? You know, we should actually start with digital payments, which is actually a huge revolution that is taking place in many parts of the world. So if you think about how um, you and I in the U.S. might pay for a cup of coffee, you know, you could use a debit card, a credit card, or now you can use Apple Pay. Um, if you want to, you know, split a dinner check with your friends, you can do it through Venmo. Um, but for people in many parts of the world, they don't have access uh, to a banking system, they don't have debit or credit cards, so it becomes yeah. a real problem dealing with cash. And it turns out that um, the other problem is that people don't have access to banking services, meaning they can't easily get credit, they can't get access to uh, places to put their money safely. Mm-hmm. So in some parts of the world, let's take Kenya as an example, mobile phone-based payment systems have become hugely important. Uh, there is a telecom operator that runs a mobile payment system called M-Pesa, um, which has become very important not only as a payment mechanism, but also giving people easy access to saving products, to uh, ways to get credit. Um, so that is a fundamental transformation. You've, of course, heard about how payments are very easy in China. Um, there are um, companies like Alipay and WeChat Pay. 
um, which dominate the payment space in China. Um, so if you go buy, you know, a dumpling or a piece of fruit from a vendor in uh, um, in Beijing or any province in uh, China, um, you can basically pay for that um, using your phone. Um, wow. So very few people in China actually use cash anymore. So that's one of the fundamental wow. things that's going on, the shift away from cash towards digital payments as a medium of exchange for transactions. So this is this is really, really interesting. We've touched on that in this show before, actually, because we had the founder of Give Directly on the show, um, which is a charity that gives money directly to folks, uh, to some of the poorest folks in the world, in many in Africa. And those payments are done through cell phones, not through cash, um, but yeah, the, through the means that you describe. And actually, that, this is really interesting to me because an argument that I've heard a lot in the United States when businesses go cashless, you know, when say the the the, the salad chain Sweet Green in, here in LA at least is completely cashless, it's only credit cards, and people in the United States say, "Well, hold on a second, this disenfranchises uh, poorer folks because they might not have access to a credit card or you know Apple Pay or something like that, and they tend to use cash." But what you're saying is, and I know that this is the case, well, these are some of the, <laughs> those folks are much, uh, folks in Kenya are much poorer than than poor folks in America, but in those spheres, cash is disappearing entirely. So those are <laughs> kind of two opposed points of view. What what does that dynamic mean? Now, that's a good point. Um, there are some people who are going to be left out if we stop using cash. In fact, uh, um, there is legislation in some states um, uh, to prohibit merchants from uh, refusing to accept cash. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, some states like Massachusetts already have a law on their books and many other states have either passed or are considering passing such laws for precisely this reason. Um, and one of the problems is that in the US, as you correctly pointed out, before you have access to a digital payment system, you need a bank account or you need to have a credit card. And to get those, you need to have a reasonable chunk of money. Uh, the way things have developed in a country like um, Kenya um, or China is that you don't need to have access to a bank account or a, uh, or a credit card. All you need is a mobile phone um, and that allows you uh, to use that channel as a payment mechanism. So you don't mm -hmm. need uh, to be at the mercy of these uh, uh, other companies. And there is an interesting reason why uh, payments at some level in the U.S. are so backward. I mean, we might think we've made enormous progress here in the um, U.S., um, but um, why is it that digital payments are so much cheaper, both for merchants and for consumers in the rest of the world um, than they are in the US. Yeah. And therein lies a story. If you think about how companies like uh, Visa and MasterCard make their money, they charge pretty significant interchange fees. It's a huge fee. And if you're buying a cup of coffee, you know, there is a fixed cost. There is a basic transaction fee that translates into a pretty significant percentage. So why is it that you don't have alternative payment systems coming up? One reason, of course, is that uh, in emerging markets, if you don't have any payment system like a debit or credit card, there is a demand for this payment system. So something new comes along, um, it's easier to gain traction. In the US, um, if you or I had to switch to a different payment system, maybe we might say, oh, why would I bother? I already have Apple Pay on my phone. I already have a credit card. I don't need this. The credit card companies have been very clever. They've used their money in two very effective ways. One is they pay off politicians. Um, mm. So in the U.S., it makes it much harder uh, for a new payment system to take root because these companies are politically very powerful. Mm. And then these companies do something else. They bribe us. 
So when you go out and buy something with a credit card, you're going to get some of it as a cash back. Oh, you're going yeah. to get points. And so you might say when you go into a shop, hey, I want to use my credit card because there is something in it for me. Yeah. So the credit card companies- I get 2% companies, cash back. I get airline miles. I know. That's cool. So effectively, <laughs> the credit card companies have bribed us, the users, and they have bribed the politicians, um, although somewhat more subtly, uh, in a way that makes it much harder for new entrants. In many of these developing economies, by contrast, yeah. there is no Apple Pay. There are no alternatives. Uh, people use cash, but it's not good for consumers to have to transact in so much cash. It's not good for businesses. There are concerns about counterfeiting, about theft. All of that yeah. disappears if you have an easy digital trail through a digital phone. That's why I think the rest of the world actually is ahead of us, especially countries like China, compared to what we have in the U.S., so because we have this entrenched player of the credit card companies that are making, well, 1.5%, 3% off of every transaction. And that's a, an enormous tax that they're putting on almost every trans, like almost every transaction I use is via my credit card um, or via Apple Pay, which goes through my credit card. Um, and so that's an enormous tax. They're able to use that money in order to like retain that advantage. And by the way, that really... That really like hurts folks at the bottom of the pyramid because like if the credit card company is charging the the vendor three percent, so they have to raise their prices by three percent. Well, I don't mind so much because I'm getting two percent cash back on my credit card, so it's really only one percent for me. But the person who walks into the store and doesn't have that credit card or doesn't have a rewards credit card and is paying with cash, they have to pay that three percent surcharge anyway, even though they're not getting the benefit of the. Uh, of the miles that I am accruing. Um, so it's a really pernicious scheme that you're describing. But in other countries that didn't have that big uh, what, vested player, that big actor already there to say, hey, we've got a lot of people who you know, are, are can't figure out where to keep their stacks of cash. They're getting robbed. They need to access a digital payment. The, the telephone company is just able to say, Hey, let's just build a quick, easy payment system with what a, a low fee that that is easy for folks to access. Um, and since their customer base is is very poor, they're not going to charge a whole a whole lot of uh, you know a whole onerous tax on this. Um, so it just allows it to flourish in that way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so essentially, where there is a blank slate in terms of uh, mm -hmm. uh, access to digital payments, um, these alternatives come up. And it's interesting how some of these come up as well. So if you think about uh, the Kenyan case that I mentioned, the telecom company realized that there were many people who were using, you know, mobile phone credits uh, as a payment mechanism because they could essentially transfer mobile phone credits from one person to the other instead of uh, cash. So that's when Safaricom, the company, realized that there was a business opportunity here. They could help themselves and help the people by essentially creating a more formal payment channel that you could use to transact cash rather than uh, using the mobile phone credits. Wow. So people were literally just saying, hey, I'm going to send you some minutes in order to pay you for this, uh, I don't know, some piece of street food for this skewer or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, well, hold on a second. Let's just allow them to, to send money from place to place. Are there any downsides, though, to this payment system? I mean, I have to say when I'm a mobile phone company that is serving, you know, a population, a developing country that has, you know, very, no access to banking, uh, I can imagine that's a very easy process to exploit. And a lot of people make a lot of money off of, you know, soaking poor folks for the very little money that they have. That's a huge business here in the, in the United States. I'm wondering, is there are there problems like that in Kenya or in China that, you know, abuses of this? 
things can go wrong. Um, and uh, uh, an example of a country where things have not gone so well is Somalia. Uh, Somalia has been through a huge amount of civil strife and, uh, um, uh, you know, transacting in cash is a real problem there because of, uh, um, you know, the lack of good public governance, which means the government doesn't work well. Um, safety is not easily assured. So carrying cash around is a problem. There are um, uh, mobile operators that offer uh, payment services there, but there is a risk that some of those are fly-by-night operators um, and there are potentially risks there that you could uh, trust a mobile phone operator, put a significant amount of money there and then it turns out that that money is gone because yeah. uh, they are not regulated like uh, a commercial bank would be. Uh, and of course, the other issue is that there is a trade-off here. As with anything digital, uh, you lose some degree of privacy. Um, now, for most people, um, you know, the ability to transact easily and safely uh, easily overwhelms any notion of uh, um, privacy. I mean, maybe living uh, hand to mouth, privacy is not what you really care about. Um, but certainly, uh, as economies become more developed, it becomes a problem. China is dealing with precisely this issue, the big payment providers. Uh, and right now, there are two dominant ones, WeChat Pay and uh, Alipay. Uh, practically every Chinese um, person has one of these uh, or both of these on his or her phone, uses it for a variety of transactions, and these companies can soak up a ton of data. Um, yeah. And these two companies have grown so large right now that they dominate payments. So this has made the Chinese government concerned about privacy. Mm. And there is, of course, a deep irony here. Uh, one thinks about China as being a surveillance state and the surveillance state is concerned that there are companies that have become <laughs> right. more effective at surveillance than the hey, government. Hey, that's our data. To crack down on them. <laughs> yes. And this is a big issue in every country, not just in the US. Uh, who has rights to those data? Who controls the data? And what do they do with it? Yeah, and there is, you know, I, I find that well, the more you think about that, the more you do sort of start to see some of the original advantages of cash. You know, like, honestly, the main reason I carry around cash now is so that there are certain services that I use that I want to tip the person. And I've done a whole look, I've done a lot of work on my own show on this podcast about tipping and, and you know, the, the historical roots of tipping. And and it's an imperfect system. But there are still cases in which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm receiving a service and I want to make sure that the person I am interacting with is paid a little bit more. And I don't trust necessarily necessarily that tip button in the app to make sure that that person is going to get the money because a lot of these, you know, Instacart and companies like this will take a tip and then actually charge it against the person's wages so they don't receive the full value of the tip. So one of the reasons I keep cash is specifically because I know when I give this person $10, they will receive $10 and no one's taking a percentage of it and no one is tracking that I'm giving it. I know because I handed it to them. There is that security of cash that can start to disappear a little bit when we're talking about digital currencies, no? You're a man after my heart, Adam. I still keep a stack of $5 bills to uh, add $10 bills to tip my Uber drivers and my uh, Instacart delivery people because yes, yeah. there is something about getting cash that I think, you know, perhaps even creates a human connection, this uh, yes. tangible element and the surety that the person has the money and that nobody else can intervene is certainly a big thing. But here again, there is a downside, you know, of course, cash has been used uh, and is being increasingly used not for these sorts of um, uh, legitimate purposes, but largely for uh, illegitimate purposes. A lot of money laundering, um, mm -hmm. a lot of illicit activities are uh, financed through cash. 
And then one might argue, you know, paying a babysitter or, you know, um, a gardener uh, in cash and those people not reporting that uh, revenue to the government is not a big deal. Um, many of these people, uh, your high school babysitter uh, probably is not going to uh, be liable for any taxes anyway. But in many countries, uh, even in the U.S., there is a concern that activities fueled by cash are part of what is called the shadow economy. These are perfectly legitimate activities, but that escape the eye of the government and therefore escape the tax net. Uh, so another advantage of moving to digital payments is that once you have a digital trail, it becomes harder, uh, not impossible, but much harder to disguise transactions and keep it in the shadow economy so the government could more easily collect revenues, which you may or may not consider a good thing. That's a whole other episode. Um, but uh, yeah, I, so, and also, by the way, if you're carrying around a lot of cash, there's a reason, you know, uh, taxi drivers get get stuck up, right? Uh, get robbed because, you know, it's like these mobile, uh, you know, basically safes driving around, like, you know, having a large amount of cash creates a security problem as well. Um, and uh, so, so there's advantages and disadvantages here. Uh, I do want to ask you, though, a lot of what we're talking about is the sort of digital currency that we're all familiar with, right? That I've got, I, I look at my money, uh, I log into my bank account, I have an app on my phone, I can send money using an app from me to you. And, you know, what you're describing in Kenya and China is a more efficient or maybe sort of supercharged version of the same thing. Um, but I also know that you've spoken and written a lot about the idea of a digital dollar um, that and I want to ask, is that something different than what we've been talking about? The idea of currency becoming because because when I, I'm looking at my bank account, I'm like, OK, this still corresponds to a dollar bill that's sitting around somewhere in my head. That's how it feels. Um, but is there some other transition that is going to happen that and, and if so, what? Yeah, so here it's worth, uh, and here I'll put on my professorial hat, it's worth thinking about <laughs> concepts. I mean, when you think about uh, cash, this is money created by a central bank that is in physical form, but most money uh, in economies right now is digital. As you correctly pointed out, your bank balances uh, are not, you know, pieces of paper sitting in a bank wall somewhere. They're just uh, uh, digital um, uh, traces out there. Most money is transacted. Uh, through digital forms that do not have any uh, physical implications at all. Um, so central bank issued money is again one form of money that also uh, coexists with uh, money created by banks. And this is an odd thing that, you know, is not um, uh, often thought of. You know, we think about banks as just places where we put our money and then we can take out loans. But, you know, when a bank issues a loan and creates a corresponding deposit, it actually creates money. So, in fact, most mm. of what we economists think of as broad money that fuels economic activity um, is really created by commercial banks rather than the central bank. You know, but we all love our cash. And this is why central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, which is the uh, digital dollar that you mentioned, uh, comes into play. Um, in many countries, there is a concern that, uh, you know, as these digital payment systems start taking hold, uh, central bank issued cash will become irrelevant. And that's not such a good thing because you want people to have the option of a government issued currency rather than just a private, uh, privately issued currency. Why is this? You know, by privately may, issued currency, you mean a cryptocurrency or something along those lines? 
a cryptocurrency or a currency issued by a bank or a uh, digital mm -hmm. payment form of some uh, sort that is uh, that is Facebook managed by the private sector. Facebook credits or whatever, yeah. Exactly, or Amazon credits. Uh, the concern is that if we start getting a little worried about these companies that are issuing that currency, we may lose faith in it, we cannot use it for payment, and then if there isn't a government-issued backstop, you sort of face a crunch time because suddenly payments in the economy don't work. So some countries like Sweden, for instance, are experimenting with a CBDC, a central bank digital currency. In that case, it would be the e-krona. Uh, the krona mm. is the uh, Swedish currency. So the e-krona. I know that because it was just a crossword puzzle clue for me. The <laughs> Swedish krona was a crossword puzzle clue. So I just learned this like three or four days ago. I'm sorry. Please go on. OK, well, next year, the e-krona will be the <laughs> solution to a crossword puzzle because it's coming. So the e-krona would basically be a backstop. If the private payment systems fail, you still have access to a central bank that is a government-issued payment system. But in a country like the U.S., um, you know, there are still about um, uh, 5 to 6 percent of individuals in the U.S. who are unbanked, meaning they don't have access to a bank account or debit cards or credit yeah. cards. And as we discussed earlier, these people could be disenfranchised if you don't have uh, cash. And also cash is inefficient in some ways. As I mentioned, you know, it's difficult for merchants to have to deal with cash, to take it to the bank. It's very unsafe uh, and so on. So in the U.S., there is a move towards uh, uh, at least considering a digital um, dollar. Now, the U.S. is actually um, somewhat behind relative to the rest of the world. You know, there are a huge number of countries, Japan, China, uh, Sweden, um, the Eurozone, um, uh, India, Brazil, all of which have either started or plan to start CBDC trials. The first central bank digital currency in the world is already in operation. Mm. Where you might ask, it's in the tiny island nation of the Bahamas. Ah. So the sand dollar, as it's called, <laughs> is the world's first official digital currency. Uh, and the idea there is that if you have a digital currency, now basically you can give people access to a central bank account. So rather than keeping your money in a commercial bank account, mm. you can keep money in a central bank account, use that for transactions, and the central bank doesn't charge you any fees, it doesn't charge you any, uh, require any minimum deposits. So now, so long as you have a mobile phone um, and an app, suddenly you're in business because you can use digital payments even if you're the poorest of the poor. Uh, if you're in one of mm. the outlying islands in the Bahamas, you now have access to a digital payment system. So you can think about a digital dollar as basically uh, enfranchising people, giving very um, uh, poor people even access to a digital payment system. Uh, you do need a mobile phone or some sort of access to uh, uh, to the uh, internet. Um, without that, there would be a problem. So there are still concerns in terms of digital access, financial literacy, and so on. But a digital dollar could actually bring more people into the digital payment system. So, so wait, I, I want to make sure I understand properly because Look, a lot of this conversation gets to the question of what is money, which is very a very difficult question to answer and not what I have you here to ask about, although maybe we'll get there. But um, so when you talk about a digital dollar, you're not really talking about something that is like a different form of currency than our current dollar. You're talking about a way that the central bank might make digital currency 
like in the same way that I log into my, you know, my my current, uh, you know, Capital One checking account, not my actual bank for anyone who wants to hack me. But, you know, my my Capital One app and see my digital you know dollars there, uh, the government might you know, the central bank might create a way for everyone to have access to digital currency in that way by creating an account for them at a central bank and when they want to inject, say, money into the economy, they can just say, hey, let's, I don't know, distribute money to people via, <laughs> via the, the, the central bank's digital account rather than uh, what, doing it in a more old fashioned method. Does that, is that about right? Hey, you've hit upon a very important aspect of central bank digital currencies. But first, let me just clarify uh, that you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it turns out that um, central bank digital currencies can take different forms, but the way that would make the most sense is to have what are effectively accounts at the central bank or digital wallets uh, mm -hmm. maintained by the central bank. It turns out that these digital wallets can actually be even held by third-party providers who can check your credentials and so on. So it turns out that even a regular bank, um, uh, let's say a branch of Wells Fargo, which is not my branch, my bank, <laughs> but let's say um, that you could walk Good. into a Wells Fargo uh, bank and say, uh, look, I could put my money in an account with you, which pays me an interest, or I can uh, have with you a central bank uh, uh, account um, that I can use for transactions where you will not charge me any fees because the central bank mandates it to be so, where I will learn no interest. Uh, so it's just like uh, money, except it's in digital form. I'm getting it now. So the same way that a central bank issue or actually the treasury in our case, but, you know, issues dollar bills that anyone can use that, you know, you can are a store of money. You can hold them in your hand um, in order to make payments work throughout the economy. And then you can go put them in a bank if you want. In this case, the government would say, OK, everyone in the country has a digital wallet that you can store digital dollars in and you can put those in a bank if you want or you can use them for payments. But we're creating this system that anyone can use to really fluidly pass money around digitally. And that's the essential different point. Am I getting it? That's exactly right. Cool. And now there are possibilities. You talked about giving people money. Let's take uh, something like the coronavirus stimulus payments. You right. I want to talk was, about this. So this was a big hassle during that uh, uh, period when um, you know, people really uh, needed money. And there were some people in pretty desperate circumstances and the circumstances got even more desperate because of money that was supposed to come to them. Some of it uh, was sent in the form of checks, debit cards, which got lost in the mail, which got delayed and so on. Um, now, certainly one could uh, uh, think about making sure that people are eligible to get payments, but so long as you can uh, find a way to ensure that eligibility now you have a very easy way to do what for us economists used to be something of a dream, something called helicopter drops of money, which is basically mm -hmm. what a coronavirus stimulus payment is. Basically, you give everybody a chunk of money. Uh, of course, you can say that the truly rich, uh, uh, I'm not one of those, and uh, maybe you're one, Adam, but uh, if you're not, <laughs> uh, one could still get some of this money. So one could set some sort of income threshold, maybe by linking it to IRS information. But everybody gets a chunk of money uh, in their accounts that they can now go out and spend. We're actually covering this in my new Netflix show, The G Word, which is going to come out next year. We're talking about this exact problem because the government in the coronavirus uh, – and by the way, please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm saying all this to make sure I got it right. 
But the uh, the government wanted to inject a ton of money into the economy uh, during the coronavirus shutdown. Um, and, uh, you know, big corporations and banks literally have Fed accounts. And the and the Fed is just able to, like, put money in those accounts. Say, hey, you've got a whole bunch of money now. Go distribute it. Private citizens don't have that. So instead, they had to give it through, like you said, mailing checks to people via the IRS or through the unemployment system, which is this really slow, you know, state-based system where, you know, people have to call and they get the busy signal. It's so difficult. And if we just all had accounts like you're talking about, when a horrible disaster happens and the government needs to say, oh, my God, nobody can work. We just need to give everybody two grand so people don't die and the economy doesn't grind to a halt. They could just, boom, do it and not have to do it through all the or what about the small business loans? You wouldn't have to do it through, you know, all this uh, application, the PPP loan, et cetera. You would just have an account. Is that the idea? That's correct. I mean, uh, it's not that the process was completely inefficient. Those people who had, you know, direct deposit uh, accounts with the IRS got their money pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. that still left uh, millions of people who had uh, difficulties getting this money. So, yes, yeah. having a central bank account would make it a lot easier. But, you know, there are other interesting possibilities as well, because one problem with the government uh, giving um, people $2,000 is it's not sure what they will do it with. So let's say the government gives you, Adam, $2,000, um, and you have uh, um, enough money and you say, oh, heck, this $2,000 is good, but I don't really need to spend it right now. Let me just put it away in my you know, regular bank account because I'll save it for some other time. That's not so good because the whole point of this stimulus was not only to help people, uh, but also to make sure that some of this money ended up flowing to businesses, created jobs, or at least maintained jobs and increased the economy's demand. So it prevented economic activity from freezing. So with this digital dollar, suddenly there are new possibilities. Um, You could say, I'm going to give everybody 2000 units of this money, but these units of money are going to be special. If you don't spend them in the next six months, it's gone. Um, Mm. So Digital money creates all these possibilities that you could um, uh, design expiry dates. In fact, I think there was a, a senator, I hate to say the name here, it may have been Ted Cruz or somebody who suggested that there should in fact be expiry dates on uh, um, on money. And it's not such a crazy idea because the problem with these stimulus packages always is that uh, um, some people end up saving it. So it has much less of an economic impact than you would expect. So you can do funky things like that with digital currencies. The other thing you could do, you know, with cash, there is one problem, which is that cash has a zero rate of interest, which means Mm -hmm. that $100 today is $100 uh, next year. Or less Um, because of inflation. Inflation can eat away at the value of that money. But when the economy is tanking, having $100 today, there is still $100 tomorrow is not such a bad thing. Um, One thing you would like to do to encourage people to spend for businesses to invest is to say, if I had $100 today and I don't spend it, it's going to become $95 next year. Hmm. Uh, That gives you an incentive to spend. And if your money is digital, what could the central bank do? It could say, um, hey, you keep your money in this account. Um, If you don't spend it, um, it's going to decline in value. So suddenly now you have a negative nominal interest rate. Which allow, and this is not a far-fetched notion. In fact, there were some countries in uh, Europe that were facing a, a problem. Um, uh, Japan had the same problem of deflation. That is, prices mm. are falling. You know, you might think falling prices are a good thing, but there is a problem with falling prices, which is even worse than inflation. If you know that your TV is going to uh, cost 10% next, next year, you might say, let me just wait for a year. 
Yeah, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it. People around the economy say I'm not going to buy stuff. Suddenly, there is less demand. So firms start uh, uh, laying off workers. There is even less demand. So you get into this deflationary spiral where suddenly, mm-hmm. because of falling prices, all hell breaks loose. If you could offset this deflationary spiral by reducing the value of money, uh, not through inflation, but by basically just knocking down the nominal value of money, suddenly the government has a tool. And this actually would be a tool. I don't want to overstate this because, you know, doing things like putting expiry dates on money, uh, paying negative interest rates are crazy policy choices, but we've been living through crazy times. (laughs) What you're describing is uh, everything you've said in the last answer is a little bit spooky to me. You know, I mean... Uh, first of all, it's unsettling the idea. It, it is a. It's why I get your point about oh, there's so many possibilities, but these are unsettling ideas. The idea, okay, the government's going to give me or the money that I have is going to slowly go down. And I look, I'm the sort of person I I like experts and I like having some management of people saying, hey, there's a problem, and if we look carefully and take the right measures, we can prevent a financial collapse. I believe in all that kind of thing. But I, I started to get a little bit squicked out by the idea of a bureaucrat somewhere going, oh, I'm worried about deflation. We're going to suddenly have a negative interest rate and everybody's money that they had in their digital wallet is going to start trickling away. And I do wonder about, you know, you said the idea of people, oh, people might save the money, et cetera. But I'm a big believer in the idea that, hey, people know what's best for them. Right. And that we don't want to be too, too paternalistic. And that, you know, if, if we say we need to inject some money in the economy, we just give people the money and let them make the best decision for themselves. That's the idea behind charities like big, give directly and things like that. So w- what you're describing is a system that gives the state a lot more control over money and what people do with it. And and that's something that, oh, those are that, that's a complicated, difficult idea. I'm not sure how much I like it. We got to go to break, but I'm curious what you think about this real quick. There is a lot to be said about that. <laughs> I know. We Actually, could end up. T- tell you what, summer. tell you what, tell you what, let's go to break and this will be a cliffhanger and we'll come back and then you can answer that question. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. We can lead into a dystopian world and the answer that I come up with. <laughs> that sounds great. We'll be right back with more Ishwar Prasad. Okay, we're back with Ishwar Prasad. Uh, Ishwar, we were just uh, evoking a horrible future or a concerning future where we were talking about the wonderful possibilities of digital money, but then we started going down a road where we're talking about, well, it gives the state many more opportunities to uh, control the money that we use to to make it, you know, sort of trickle away if we if we're in a deflationary situation or that kind of thing, and that's unsettling and and maybe kind of objectionable to some folks. So what what is yeah what what is the and by the way, uh, you know, I don't always trust the United States government. Certainly, if I live in a country like China that has a much more authoritarian regime, I start to get a lot more concerned. So. Uh, tell me about those parts of it. Are those things that we should be worried about with the idea of these central bank digital currencies? So central bank digital currencies have many positive attributes, but there are things we should be uh, worried about. And as you will see from my answer, um, we should approach this uh, not just from a technocratic perspective, but also from a societal perspective, because there is some mm-hmm. pretty big uh, 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 social implications of uh, the changes we are seeing. So first of all, I should be very clear that this uh, um, notion of negative interest rates, you know, reducing the value of money that I spoke about um, in your um, central bank digital wallets, that is uh, 
you know, desperate policy for desperate circumstances. No central banker uh, wants to be uh, driven there. But as we've seen, there were some countries around the world that were in such perilous circumstances that negative interest rates, negative nominal interest rates, that is not inflation adjusted, but nominal ones, those we had thought were uh, improbable and uh, wouldn't work. Actually, they did work in many countries around the world, in Japan, in Sweden, um, for a few years, but they create all sorts of distortions uh, uh, and nobody really wants them. So mm. it, it's just uh, in desperate circumstances, you might want them for a little period. But there is another problem, and you've hit upon it, Adam, which is that we may end up, if we have central bank digital um, uh, wallets and uh, CBDC accounts, where the government has much more control over the economy, and even central banks really don't want this. Let me give you one example. Let's say we all have central bank accounts where we can keep money just for transaction purposes. And then we start hearing about some financial troubles in the economy. And we know that during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, you know, some very reputable um, uh, banks with rich traditions started facing severe problems. So we might all say, hey, this is a difficult time. Let me just as a precaution, take my money and put it in my central bank account, because after all, that's safer. If you had this happening, if you had a huge flight of deposits from the commercial banks to the central bank, the commercial banks could end up collapsing. And then you might end up having this very awkward situation where the central bank gets all these deposits and has to allocate loans in the economy. Nobody, including the central bank, wants that to happen, but it is a risk. It mm. can be managed. The Bahamas, for instance, has figured out a way to manage this. You just put a cap on the amount that people can put in their central bank accounts. So there are ways to manage these risks, uh -huh. but there is an even greater risk. I talked about, you know, expiry dates on money. You could do other things with money. Um, you can very easily conceive of a scenario where you can link up money with UPC product codes and say you can use central bank money for certain things, but not for other things. Let's say a conservative government might say you cannot use the money that I issue you, say, for contraception or pornography or something. A liberal government, in the American sense of the term, might say you cannot use this to buy ammunition or arms. Now, suddenly, money starts becoming an instrument of societal control as well. Yeah. I'm not saying we are anywhere near this, but you could conceive of a world that is much more dystopian. Certainly. And even if none of this happens, there is a more basic problem, which is that with cash, if I buy you, Adam, a cup of coffee, nobody really knows about it except the barista at whatever coffee yeah. shop he goes to. If the only means of payment we have are either a debit card, a credit card, or a central bank account, somebody is going to know about it. Uh, the yeah. central bank can have some degree of privacy in basic transactions, but ultimately, uh, my view is that anything where there is a digital trail can in some form be unraveled. And that yeah, is something that we need to think about as a society. Uh, the Eurozone actually conducted a survey of its citizens to say, how would you guys feel about the digital euro? The number one concern that uh, Eurozone citizens had was about privacy. Sweden is undertaking CBDC experiments and the, the central bank is very wisely recognizing that they cannot move on their own. Technically, they could institute you know, an e-krona on their own but they cannot do it without parliament approval because they know that unless society buys into this, there is going to be a big pushback. And I think we need to and will have that debate here in the U.S. as well.
Yeah. Well, the, I mean, these are all <laughs> like you, you described really in the first half, all the wonderful beneficial things that could happen if we do it right. But those are, you know, uh, not really bringing human nature into it and that not bringing in the fact that, you know, uh, the, the systems that humans tend to design for ourselves are not so perfect and, you know, are, are used by, can be used by bad actors or used by inefficient governments can have security holes and things like that. And when you're talking about the level of societal control that could be exercised through these, yeah, that does get worrisome. When I look at, you know, again, say that's the, you know, the central government of China that, you know, recently, for instance, this is a very, I just follow video game news. So I know about this. But, you know, the 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 government there exercises very tight control over video games. So you can't buy video game consoles and they just put limits over children. I think children can only play video games, uh, online video games for a couple hours a week now during like certain periods. Right. That's a it's a very large amount of control to have. And if you're having that control at the currency level, right, if you're able to say, well, this currency works, but it doesn't work on certain things, that is uh, – that's that's a tool that I'm not sure that I want a government to have. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure how I feel about it, and I certainly see the potential for abuse. Um, and, yeah, the privacy issues are are very, very big. So, so you, it sounds like you're talking about this as a future that, hey, we're moving into – and there are some good things that could result, but we have to be very careful about it. Is that your general take? That's absolutely right. At a technical level, at a policy level, there are many advantages to CBDCs. And let's face it, it's going to happen. I think um, very few of us are going to be using cash in the future. So I think uh, the way I would steer this uh, is to not say, oh, my God, we should be terrified and not let uh, CBDCs come into existence. They are. But let's put in place the right kind of safeguards so that at a technical level, we can make sure that central banks don't start having to do the work of commercial banks. The central banks can assure us at least a basic level of privacy in our transactions, even if they want to make sure that, you know, that the currency in digital form cannot be used for money laundering, terrorism, financing or such nefarious activities. And we want to make sure that there are safeguards in place that um, the government cannot start using its money as a tool of uh, um, societal control. So these are all things we are going to have to think about as societies and ultimately uh, legislatures will have to get involved. This is not going to be a purely technocratic uh, issue. There is an interesting well, twist in the context of China, though, uh, which I just want to mention. You know, in China, as I mentioned, uh, indicated earlier, there are these two big payment systems, uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay, that run the payment systems in China that dominate it and are hoovering up a lot of data. The Chinese central bank has started digital currency trials, and they're making the interesting pitch to people, hey, if you use our currency, uh, we're going to be much more cautious about collecting the data, and besides, you should trust yeah. us with the data more than these companies, because after all, we don't want to use the data for commercial purposes, whereas Alipay and WeChat Pay are going to exploit this for commercial purposes. So you should trust us more than you should trust those companies. And having this come from uh, a government that, as you know, has uh, a tendency uh, to tightly uh, surveil and manage its citizens is an interesting irony. Yeah, well, I'm sure many Chinese citizens do trust the government more than they trust those uh, corporations, but I'm, many, many citizens have reason not to. Uh, yeah, there is an irony there. Well, look, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this screaming at us because we have barely talked about cryptocurrency yet. And I think a lot of cryptocurrency boosters would see 
crypto or at least promote crypto as being the uh, the antidote to this problem that, you know, if we have a decentralized currency that is just sitting on many people's computers, you know, using crypto cryptography, uh, well, the, you, you know, de facto, the state cannot control what you have used it for. And it is much more like cash while having all the advantages of a digital currency. Um, and so what do you say to that? I also know that you wrote an article called uh, Five Myths About Cryptocurrencies. So I'd love if you to walk us through those as well. So um, Bitcoin, uh, which started off the whole cryptocurrency revolution, you know, was a, a fantastic concept. The idea that you could have uh, a medium of exchange that allowed you to conduct transactions without revealing your actual identities, that is using just your digital identities, um, and to do this in a form um, that did not involve intervention by government or central bank or any official agency or a trusted institution like a commercial bank. I mean, Many people may not trust commercial banks, but we still keep our money uh, in them to a large extent. So this notion of, um, you know, trust through public consensus uh, was really very uh, attractive. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that it has not worked for what it was designed to do. It turns out that Bitcoin is a lousy medium of exchange. Uh, mm. It's very expensive to transact using Bitcoin. In fact, this year, the average transaction fee has been somewhere around eight to nine dollars on wow. one transaction. Uh, it takes about 10 minutes to complete a transaction because of the way transactions are uh, <laughs> your, co your coffee would be cold by the time your Bitcoin transaction is done. Yes. And uh, it turns out that it's not truly uh, uh, pseudonymous. Pseudonymous means uh, uh, allowing you to transact with just your digital identity. It turns out that uh, where Bitcoin meets the real world, so if you were to pay for something and get a package delivered, um, the address could eventually be linked to um, your Bitcoin digital address. But I think the irony here, uh, and this whole discussion is rife with ironies, is that while Bitcoin has proven to be a terrible medium of exchange for transactions, it's become a store of value. So this is a mm. purely digital object that, as you say, exists just on computers. It's created just by a computer algorithm. It has no intrinsic value because it cannot be used very efficiently as a medium of exchange. But people trust that it's going to have value. Now, why does it have value? People in the Bitcoin community will tell you the following. The reason it has value is that it is going to be limited in terms of how much it's going to be created. Mm -hmm. There are ultimately going to be only 21 million Bitcoins that can be created. There's About scarcity. 18 and a half million have been created so far. So it's scarce, just like gold is scarce. The question is whether scarcity by itself is enough to create value. Uh, as an economist, I think just because something is scarce, it's not going to have value. It needs to have some fundamental use. Even yeah. gold has some basic uses. Fiat money, on the other hand, that is printed by central banks or governments can be printed at will in infinite amounts. And Bitcoin and cryptocurrency adherents might say, why should we trust that uh, something like this will preserve its value when the central bank can go out and print any amount of money? Uh, there are reasons why it seems to have value still. Number one, people still trust at least uh, the US government and some other governments. And second, the government can require that certain payments, such as tax obligations, can be paid only using the legal tender, which is the yeah. fiat currency. Therefore, it has value. So I worry about Bitcoin. Now, having said all this, 
uh, three years ago when I started working on my book, if instead of wasting time writing my book, I'd actually gone out and bought Bitcoin, I'd be a much richer <laughs> guy for this. So if you were then able to sell your Bitcoin, right? I mean, like that, that appears to me to be part of the problem that, you know, Bitcoin has its value because everyone believes in the value of it. But then if people start selling it, then the value of it drops. And so you have all these Bitcoin billionaires of billion do billions of dollars of Bitcoin, but aren't able to get it out because if they sell it and try to convert it into dollars, well, they'll tank the whole market. And uh, is, is that, uh, I mean, it's, it starts to, the more you think about it, the more your brain starts to like fold in on itself, trying to figure it out. That's right. The, I, I had no prospect of being a Bitcoin billionaire, maybe a 10,000 <laughs> at most. Uh, but you're absolutely right. These markets are not very liquid. And, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, three to five years from now, the value of Bitcoin could be some crazy amount, like a million dollars per Bitcoin, or it could be zero. Both of these, in my view, are equally likely because if people suddenly start worrying about Bitcoin and a few people try to sell large amounts of Bitcoin, that value could plunge to nothing. But you know, the technology is a marvel and I think the technology has set off something really fundamental. So I spent a couple of chapters in my book talking about um, uh, this issue and that's, I, I think, phenomenal because one of the things that is really a problem right now in the world is access to digital payments uh, and not just digital payments within countries, but across countries, you know, for workers, say from Mexico or Haiti who want to send their money back home uh, if they're working in the US, you know, that transaction is very expensive. Uh, it takes a lot of time. It's difficult to keep track of. And it's not just economic migrants, you know, uh, companies that uh, export and import, uh, even financial institutions that are sending money across borders, find it horribly inefficient. So these new um, technologies can actually help uh, in terms of providing more efficient payments. Now, in addition to the problems with Bitcoin, I mentioned the other problem for a, something that you use for transactions is you need to have stable value. I mean, yeah. uh, the value of Bitcoin, you know, has bounces around like crazy. It's like if you go to, uh, if you take a Bitcoin and one day um, you can have, um, uh, you know, a very fancy meal with uh, uh, whatever Bitcoin you have. And the next day that Bitcoin is worth just a cup of coffee. That's not a great medium of exchange. So there are new uh, cryptocurrencies that have come up that are called stable coins. Mm -hmm. So the stable coins basically use similar technology to make efficient payments, but their values anchored because they hold reserves of money. And it turns out the money they hold is fiat currencies. So Facebook, for instance, wants to issue its own cryptocurrency. And their promise is the value of each unit of their cryptocurrency, which they want to call the DM, uh, each unit of DM will be backed up by a US dollar. So you know that if you buy a DM, Facebook has set aside a dollar. So the value of the, the DM relative to the dollar will remain the same. And now Facebook says, I'm going to give you a great payment mechanism. Now, do I trust Facebook really to maintain <laughs> privacy of transactions on? Probably not. But you can see in much of the world, you know, countries with uh, currencies that are not very credible, governments that are not credible, where Facebook is easily accessible, people might say, hey, I trust Facebook a lot more than I trust my own government. Let me start using Facebook. So now that currency could start becoming used within countries, across countries. It could be used for good purposes, bad purposes. So there too, there are potential improvements to be made in payments, but a lot to worry about. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> 
the more the more we talk about this, like like part of the pitch for cryptocurrencies, I, I believe, was supposed to be that, hey, you don't have to trust the government because it's cryptographically secured. The trust is technological. You can trust this cryptological system, which is a cryptographic system. Well, I don't know the ter- terminology, but, uh, you know, and it's like open source software. You can go read the code if you want. You can see how it's constructed. And, you know, therefore, you don't need to trust some third party. But the more you talk about it, like, you just always do like you, you need to either trust that the government is going to, you know, that, that when it says this note is legal tender, that that is correct. Or you need to trust that, you know, the anonymous person who built Bitcoin did it in such a way that is going to cause it to be a stable source of value. And you have to trust the Bitcoin exchange that you use. You know, I had a friend who bought a bunch of Dogecoins in literally 2014. And when Bit Dogecoin as a joke, he was just like, yeah, I got a couple of Dogecoins. It's funnier than Bitcoin. So I got some. And when Dogecoin started started uh, spiking, I asked him, like, hey, what happened to your Dogecoins? And he went and checked. And it turns out that three years prior, without him noticing, the place that he bought them turned out to be a massive fraud that disappeared and stole everybody's Dogecoin. It was like a famous case of disappearing money. And so all of his Dogecoins, which would have been worth, you know, $20,000 at this point, uh, had all disappeared. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, he had to trust somebody and he trusted the wrong person. Uh, and you know, you have to trust Facebook. You have to, you have to decide where you are putting your trust. Are you going to put it in the, you know, anonymous horde of Bitcoin boosters, or are you going to point, put it in the U S government? Or are you going to put it in the, the overall performance of the stock market and the economy? Like you, you, uh, ultimately are having to make some sort of, is, is money nothing but trust at the end of the day? <laughs> Trust is a crucial concept underlying uh, money because if you don't have trust, it doesn't work. And you know, in the long arc of history, there is a, an interesting development because you know, if you go back uh, to the creation of money, a lot of money initially was issued just by private merchants on the strength of their reputations, yeah. or because they had their currency backed up um, by uh, you know stores of commodities or precious metals. And then governments uh, um, started uh, creating uh, their own money. And that money was not hugely trusted because, you know, governments uh, could use um, uh, just money printing to finance their operations. So central banks were created to basically generate trust in money. So the central banks would be the guardians of faith. So mm. now and that basically wiped out all uh, privately issued currencies by and large. So now we're coming back to a stage where there is some declining confidence in uh, um, uh, private mm. banks in uh, uh, government banks. And now you have this uh, approach of trustless uh, exchange. But you know, the blockchain technology, again, uh, I think it's going to be transformative in different ways. The remarkable thing about this blockchain technology that underlies Bitcoin is that at one level, everything is transparent. So you can go out and see every transaction that has been done with every unit of Bitcoin, and it is posted on a public digital ledger that everybody can see. You can't see the actual identities of the people transacting. Like I said, it's only digital identities, but that is what actually gives the system a lot of security and creates some degree of trust because this public digital ledger is maintained on multiple computers. So if you tampered with one of them, it would immediately be noticed um, that something funky is uh, going on. But having said that, um, as you pointed out, there are some risks because there is nobody to go to if there is a problem. So if you accidentally send uh, money to the, let's say 
the digital issuer was sending money to the digital Adam and I put in the wrong uh, um, uh, digital identity for you. There are some inbuilt checks that make it less likely this happened. But if it happens, the money is gone to whoever yeah. I accidentally ended up sending it to. Um, if you happen to lose your what is called your private key, which is sort of basically like a password to your uh, Bitcoin wallet. Yeah. It's gone. Nobody can retrieve it for you because it's not like you can go to a bank and reset your password. It's gone. Um, if it turns out that there are some flaws in the software, um, you can't go out and easily get it fixed. The idea is that, you know, it's all open source or somebody or the other is going to come out and fix it. But before it gets fixed, a lot of things can go wrong. So this is where the other fragility of cryptocurrencies lies. Yeah. As they become bigger, there is a possibility that there might be some technical flaw that is uncovered and then everything goes poof. So yeah. to my mind, it's all very fragile. And, and there's also the, there's also the problem of the, what is the basis of the value? Like when you look at, okay, if you go to the, if you go to the Reddit page for a cryptocurrency, you will see people saying, Hey, let's boost it up. Right. Let's to the moon. Let's all believe that this is worth a lot and keep pushing. Right. And that pushes the value up. But that is quite evidently a, it's a, it's a booster campaign. It's trying to create sort of something out of nothing because there is no inherent value in it other than people's belief in it, right? Like it's, it's interesting because it reveals that that is the, you know, where the value comes from is people, people's belief that it's valuable, but there's no inherent underlying utility that, that makes it valuable. And that makes it look like it'll disappear at a uh, like, like it has the potential to disappear at some point in the future if everyone stops believing in it, which could happen, right? <laughs> like it could happen instantaneously. I mean, uh, history is rife with examples of these speculative manias. And even in the US, I mean, we had this uh, uh, crazy tech boom uh, just a couple of decades ago where, you know, companies that had no profits uh, and this is still the case to some extent, companies with no profits uh, said that, oh, we cannot use um, the old models to value companies. Uh, these companies are going to have such fast increases in revenues that that's going to be enough uh, to generate um, higher stock prices. And we mm -hmm. know how that ended. And there have been many, many other uh, speculative manias uh, in the past. So given that many of these cryptocurrencies don't have any intrinsic use, these to economists at least had the classic implications of speculative manias. Although in this case, there is the added element of, you know, technological coolness. You know, this technology underlying Bitcoin, like I said, is really a marvel. Uh, and there is this notion that anything with such cool technology yeah. must surely be worth a lot. And it's also and very are, accessible to a lot of people. One of the things that really, uh, you know, impresses me about cryptocurrencies is that it's given so many people a feeling that they can be a part of something that is both futuristic, but is also financial, right? It's not like the folks at Vanguard or even Betterment, right, are going to the average person saying like, hey, I can help you, you know, turn $1 into $2 and, you know, help you understand investments. They're really targeting, you know, the rich person, whereas, you know, cryptocurrencies are saying, hey, come join, jump in. It's going to be fun. The water's fine and you can be a part of this cool brand new thing. And that is some amount of utility. It gives people a good feeling to be a part of at the very least, but how long would that last? No, but that's exactly right. I mean, the uh, um, uh, part of the allure of this uh, revolution that Bitcoin has set off is the notion of democratizing finance, that it's completely 
open and permissionless and censorship resistant. What this means is that anybody uh, can get access to Bitcoin. Nobody's there to stop you uh, from getting access to Bitcoin. You don't need anybody's permission and nobody can be restricted from using it. And this is a very powerful concept that uh, yeah. uh, this does not involve any sort of uh, uh, government control at all. And if you add to that this uh, element of technological coolness, because this is a, a wonderful new technology, uh, that I think uh, has proven to be an irresistible combination. But the problem, you know, um, as with uh, many of these uh, Reddit examples of the run-up in the game stock, stock, for instance, that you mentioned, the less savvy retail investors are the ones who could get really burned. I mean, there yeah. are certainly people like the Winklevoss twins who may have a huge amount of investments in Bitcoin, but they're going to make out okay, even if the value of Bitcoin falls to uh, zero. They have enough uh, uh, money in other assets. But, you know, the retail investor who says, uh, let me put all my life savings in Bitcoin because, look, uh, the price has been rising all this time and it can go only one way up. Those are the people that one worries about in the context of the speculative mania. Yeah, and it's once you realize that in order to keep the the price of Bitcoin up, if you've got a lot of money in Bitcoin, you want the price of Bitcoin to keep going up. And the way to do that is to increase the mania for Bitcoin. And that explains why Bitcoin people or cryptocurrency people are such huge proselytizers where they're telling, oh, dude, I made so much money. Oh, you got to get in on this. Let me let me hook you up, you know, et cetera, because it's like it almost starts to look like a massively decentralized Ponzi scheme in a way <laughs> where it's or no, Ponzi scheme is the wrong word. Um, uh, pyramid scheme in a way because you, uh, you you need to get other people excited about it for the value to keep going up. Um, but eventually, you know, the the worry is that the music stops and the whole thing falls apart and people who are able to cash out in time do well. But everyone who was the last person on the bottom of the pyramid, the last person to get in is going to lose their money as the concern. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, for all of us, there is the fear of being um, left out of uh, a really good deal because who knows, Bitcoin may turn out to be the real thing. Sure. And as I mentioned, I, uh, if I had bought Bitcoin uh, three or five years ago, certainly I'd be a somewhat wealthier um, man right now. But um, that is what uh, I think draws people in, the feeling that you're being left out of an easy way to make money. I mean, who can resist the earlier of making easy money and buying Bitcoin seems like um, uh, such an easy way to make money and many people have made money. They're letting their neighbors, their friends know that they've made money for precisely the reason they need to keep the mania going. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, there's such a mania for Bitcoin, but everything is so overheated right now. The stock market has like doubled in the last year as well. So it, I, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's really wild times out there. Um, but I don't know. This is just like <laughs> this whole conversation is blowing my mind about what money is in the first place, you know, and the need for trust in it. But de decentralization, though, as being the pitch for what is so great about cryptocurrencies. Um, I understand its allure and the democratization of it, but it does make me think like, hold on a second. In the past, as you said, merchants would issue their own currencies and no one could stop them from doing it. Right. Or there were currencies that were like inherent stores of value, like, you know, um, some, uh, you know, some trade good that is really highly desired uh, ends up being a de facto currency um, because, you know, you can always, you know, sell it for, for such and such an amount. Um, this was the world hundreds of years ago where we had had completely decentralized currencies that were just based on, you know, whatever people wanted to use. And we 
went towards a world where things were more centralized, right? Um, both because the state had power it could exercise, but also because it made things more efficient. And so when I look at crypto and all these, you know, decentralized currencies, it makes me wonder, hey, are we just in the middle of a moment where this stuff is brand new? And so it's super decentralized, just like the early web, right? In 1999, when anyone can make a website. And now 20 years later, hey, if you're not on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, no one's going to watch what you do. You know, is it, are we, uh, you know, is in 20 years, are we going to look around and go, oh, wow, that, that Bitcoin crypt, crypto decentralized currency moment was really exciting. But of course, everything centralized really quick in a couple companies and a couple governments. And here we are in a new future like that. That to me looks inevitable. Does it look that way to you? Yeah, you know, one of the um, uh, good things from an economist's point of view is that um, these cryptocurrencies are providing competition. Uh, they're mm -hmm. providing competition to government-issued currencies, which in principle should make governments more, cons uh, you know, disciplined in terms of how much of their currencies they issue, under what conditions they issue it, and so on. Um, but uh, in the um, uh, internet world of things, as you pointed out, there is also the risk of uh, uh, market concentration, which means one or two players start becoming very important. You know, the great thing about the internet, the great thing about cryptocurrencies is in principle that anybody can set a, a cryptocurrency uh, and see how um, valuable it becomes. But if you have um, a corporation like Facebook or Amazon stepping in and issuing its cryptocurrency, its cryptocurrency is certainly going to get uh, a lot more traction and it's going to become right. an even more powerful uh, corporation as a result. Um, so there is a fine balance here between saying that the new technologies allow for easy entry of new uh, innovators, more competition and so on, but it could equally well lead to a lot more uh, market concentration. So I think this is one of the big uh, risks that we face out there, that we go from competition uh, towards even more uh, uh, centralization towards a few corporations, a few issuers of currencies that have even more power. Well, the thing that this conversation is really underlining for me is that this is a really exciting time when we're talking about money. There's a whole lot going on and there's a lot to follow and a lot to track. Uh, how do you recommend that people keep up to up to date with all of this? I mean, there's so much to there's so much to think about in process. Uh, yeah. I mean, how, how, how do people get involved in, in figuring out what the future of money is? Hey, there's no better place to start than my book. That's a perfect segue. So the book actually talks about uh, um, all these developments in finance. It has a couple of chapters. We'll tell you exactly how Bitcoin works, the benefits, the, um, uh, the disadvantages, and talks about other cryptocurrencies and the world uh, that they have unleashed in terms of uh, creating new technological developments. It talks about central bank digital currencies and how those, again, could have a lot of advantages, but could end up creating um, some potentially dystopian uh, scenarios. So it's all there explained without any equations, any tables. It's all in plain, simple language. Uh, my undergraduate students were able to um, comprehend <laughs> all of this. In fact, they were very tough uh, editors, <laughs> made sure that everything was spelled out very clearly. So I hope that the book will make everything crystal clear. Well, if you want to pick up a copy of the book, you can go to factuallypod.com slash books for our special bookshop where you'll be supporting not just this show, but your local bookstore. Oh, go or go walk down to your local bookstore and buy a copy. Ishwar Prasad, thank you so much for being on the show. It was incredible talking to you. Hey, Adam, that was really fun. Thank you. <laughs> 
Well, thank you once again to Ishwar Prasad for coming on the show. His book, once again, is called The Future of Money, and you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producers, Sam Roudman and Chelsea Jacobson, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song, The Fine Folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. If you want to leave a comment about the show, you can send it to factually at adamconover.net. I do read and sometimes reply to your emails. I love to get them. Please let me know what you're thinking. Uh, You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Factually. Factually. 